This is the Good Things Guy podcast with myself, Brendan DeCube, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy. I'm on a mission to change what the world pays attention to. I truly believe that there's good news all around us, and I spend my time hunting down and reporting on the best good news stories from South Africa and the world. In the Good Things Guy podcast, you'll meet these everyday heroes and hear their incredible stories. It's the first show of 2020, and I know it's a little bit late. Most of South Africa started work already in the beginning of January, and some people had to work straight through. I feel very bad for you guys. I didn't. I went on holiday. I took a break. But the 2020 season of the Good Things Guy jackpot is back, and we are ready to get to the number one spot on iTunes again this year. And I'm excited because we're kicking off the show with a champion, um, someone that we had on the show last year, and we're going to be doing a really cool catch-up, Kirst Landman, who actually she was here before the Dakar and we were speaking about getting her to the Dakar and doing the Dakar and she's done it. She became the first African lady and we say African because it's the whole continent first African lady to finish the Dakar on a motorbike and I think you finished in 55th position, correct? Yeah, 55th overall and then I found out last night someone sent me a message on um, Instagram saying huge congrats and by the way congrats on your top 10 in the rookie class I came 9th overall in the rookie class which was brought to my attention last night which is unbelievable and even, even sweeter. You know what, I don't care what number you came in, the fact that you finished and that you made it to that, that podium, it makes us all proud. It's, it's flying the South African flag high. It's flying the, the, the flag for women high and for bikers because that's what you're all about. Exactly. And that was my goal was go there to finish. Um, I wasn't worried about positions. Um, you know, as I got through each day, you, you sort of just climb the ranks because guys crash out and they have mechanicals. And, um, you know, my goal was just to have a smooth and steady race, um, hit all my waypoints. And I did that. And, and in doing that, you know, you climb the ranks and um, the result doesn't really matter. Uh, I got my finishers medal. Um, I finished safely. I, I got so much experience. It was absolutely incredible. And I did what I needed to do. And we brought home, I don't know what it is. Is it gold? Is it silver? Is it, <laughs> I don't know what it is. I don't really care. It's a, it's a Dakar finishers medal. And I'm super pumped. Okay. So for all of our listeners that, that perhaps don't know uh, your backstory, I'm going to put the same podcast underneath here that we did last time so they can get your backstory. And I'll put that beautiful advert that was shot of you as well. It's okay, very cool. emotive. <laughs> yeah. So you can get that backstory. We're not here to speak about that today. Okay. I want to know about Dakar, right? So you've prepared most of your life for this. You've been riding bikes. You're going to do this grueling, arduous race. Yeah. Were you nervous? I was terrified. Like the nerves started building up a month before Dakar started. Uh, when we flying there, I was terrified. I had sleepless nights. I had to take sleeping pills to sleep even before the race. You spend so much time. Like I say, this is like two years of hard work specifically for this race. You don't want to get sick. You don't want to pick up something on the plane. You don't want to eat something that's going to upset your stomach because you, you're so worried. You're so paranoid that something goes wrong. Uh, you know, we're going in and out because it was hot in Jeddah where we were. And uh, that, the hotel. Is that, is that in Saudi? Yeah, so that's where the start of the race was in, in, in Jeddah and the hotels are so cold because outside they, everything's just aircon pumped and then it, it was hot but it wasn't too bad but then you know you're worried that I'm going to get sick from going in and outside it's all these <laughs> things that are running through your head and um, you just actually want to get on the motorbike and get going because you know okay you just want to start and you know everything that you work towards is starting the rally and then once you start the rally everything that you work towards is finishing the rally so now while you're rallying you're thinking okay I mustn't eat this I mustn't eat that I must brush my teeth with bottled water I was permanently desanitizing my hands. I was so careful while riding not to drop the bike. And then you also, you know, you, you 
there's just so much running through your head the whole time. You know, like once you've done one thing, once you get to the, so you're worried about getting to the rally the whole time. Then you get to the rally, you're worried about, you need to start the rally without being sick or anything going wrong. Then once you're in the rally, you're like, okay, now I need to finish. Every single time there's just something that you're worrying about because there's been so much time, preparation and money put into this one event and you need it to go perfect because actually if you look at it, so much can go wrong, Yeah, you know, and to get to the start of the Dakar alone is a huge accomplishment. Well, uh, so your bike, did you take one bike? Or how, so how does it work? We rented a bike from uh, the pit crew and the team service that I used there. So they from Netherlands. They sent the bike from Netherlands. They well, they transported from Netherlands to France. Then on from France, the whole the Dakar had a whole ship that they sent all the cars, all the vehicles, all the helicopters. I mean, it is massive. I mean, they've got three thousand people working at the Dakar rally. Good 3,000 people. So, I mean, and they've got vehicles for all these people. So all of that gets onto the, at the ports, get loaded on at the ports, and then it gets sent to Jeddah. Then um, it gets all loaded, and the trucks, the cars, the camper vans, everything is there. And then we start the race. I, d- I don't want you to laugh at me now, but I'm going to make an analogy. Yes. So I've done uh, the 947 cycle challenge a couple of years in a row. Yeah. And I've done it on different bicycles. And some bicycles are easier and yes. some bicycles are much harder. Of course. And some bicycles are the same, but then they, they're different, actually. So it yeah. could be the same make, same type, but it's a different ride. Yes. And the reason I'm making that analogy is because you were renting a bike. Yes. So did you get time to practice on that bike? So the team that I rented from were exceptionally professional. I did my um, qualification rally with them in Morocco. So I had experience with them before, and they were highly, they came highly recommended by guys that had previously done Dakar. So um, Bart was very professional. The biggest thing for a motorbike they're very all of them are very similar so i mean i've got a 450 rally replica here at home and the one that i was riding there was exactly the same Uh but the biggest difference is the suspension so that is adjusted for your weight of the motorbike your your rider skill and the way you handle but across the board for rally it's very similar but the biggest thing is the weight of you on a motorbike i mean i'm not heavy as as what a guy would be you know so we had to put in softer springs and uh, we lowered it a bit and all of that stuff bart did prior to dakar so i went there and the bike was perfectly set up i mean my suspension was phenomenal the bike was i mean my, i've never ridden such a good setup bike in my life and i literally just jumped onto it and i rode it and i was comfortable they didn't need to amazing. do anything That's yeah but amazing. it's the service you get and these guys were super f- professional and just to know that you're comfortable on something gives you such a confidence going into the race 100 percent. so um night before you're in the hotel in Jeddah, nerves are all crazy and the next morning what was it like did you wake up early in the morning did the race start super early before sunrise how does it all work um all of our days started before sunrise just to give you a general idea so how it would work is you would leave the bivouac so obviously on day one we left our hotel then we'd go to the loading which they called like the loading zone which wasn't it was a bivouac but it wasn't bivouac being pits it's a french word for pits that's where we got our bikes we got on our bikes from the park for may there and then we have what you call a a road section or liaison so the liaison you have a start time that each rider has to start you have to be out of that out of your little compound by that time and then you've got a certain time to do a road section i can't remember what how long our road section was on the first day but they were really long they ranged from about the shortest must have been i think like 100 k's a day in total, to the longest being 400 kilometers a day wow. of a road section even before you well, race. Before the so race. this can be before, 
So this is to get your special test, and then you're doing it in the dark. Uh, you're following off your road book. A road book while you're on the bike? Yes, the whole time we're riding off a road book. You're making this even more technical. Oh, my gosh. And but I'll, that's t- I'll tell you why. I did, with Terence Marsh, yes, I did yeah. the navigation. Yes, yes, so you know what it's like. I, I was on the road book, yeah. and he was driving, and I was telling him where to go and what yeah, to do. That's exactly it. Wow. So in the car, they've got a navigator, as you know, and then they've yes. got the driver. Trucks, they've got the, the car, they've got a driver, they've got a navigator, and then they've got a third person. Side by side, same thing. They've got a navigator driver. Quad and a bike, you guys, we navigate ourselves. So we ride in and navigate in bicycles at the same time. It's really cool. I, I mean, when you <laughs> arrived at the studio today, I called you a champion, and I totally mean it. But my respect has gone up tenfold because oh, I know how difficult it is to navigate mm-hmm. and to navigate and ride at the same time. Yeah, you know. it's a lot to take in, <laughs> but it's cool. It's um all of all it's, it's it's all part of the experience. Exactly, and yeah. it's, that's that's what's so cool about the Dakar is the road book, and then that's actually one of my favorite things about this whole Dakar experience is the road book. So yeah, so we would start early in the morning and when we left the hotel in Jeddah it was so weird. So in Saudi Arabia, because it's the desert and the most of the year is summer for them and very short time of the year is winter and their winters don't even get their co- that cold. I mean, okay, so the mornings of the Dakars got really cold. We'd start in like two degree temperatures, so that's cold and even before we get to the start, like by the time we started in our special stage it was maybe by like seven or eight degrees. So it was freezing cold. I think that was the hardest thing for me to go on was um how cold it was and I hate the cold and also we thought of course you're South African exactly and I'm from Durban so it's even worse (laughs) (laughs) so that was the biggest thing is to adapt to the cold because the whole time I felt like I was cold even midday and then at the end of the day you getting back in the dark so I just felt like I was cold the whole day I had my jackets on I had my rain jacket on in the mornings I ride with surgical gloves under my gloves we had the hand things over the bikes it was just I just and I would put plastic bags under my kit just to, so that it stops the wind from coming through onto your body. Obviously, I'll take it off before I race the special, but the cold was terrible. Anyway, going back to what we were talking about, Jeddah, when we left the hotel on the, on the first morning to get onto our bikes, it's like the Saudis, they do everything at night. It's so weird. So during the day, you hardly see anyone on the streets. It's very, very quiet. No one's out and about. Come about 7, 8 o'clock. The town just like people come out of like it's like they come crazy. out of the ground. I don't know where they come from. I don't know where all these people come from. And then we we left our hotel Hopper Three in the morning to get to the start. We sat in traffic at Hopper Three, three in, in the morning. morning, like stop start peak hour traffic. People everywhere riding their bicycles. And also there's you can't say they're on something because there's no alcohol in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> so it's not like they were drunk or anything. They're not, they're not coming home from a party. <laughs> exactly. Wow. And um, they just and then like seven o'clock they. Go go back into wherever they've come from and, and disappear. Quite, disappear. Disappear for twelve hours. They do everything at night, and it was so weird to see that because yeah. we all we all getting up and starting our day at top of three in the morning, and they still flipping jawling. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. So we started the race. You you on there once you get off the roadside mm. and you actually start. What is the terrain like? So our first six days was a variation between rocky, stony paths. To actually, the whole of Dakar was <laughs> rocky, stony paths to long, flat straights on sandy plateaus, uh, with a maybe two, three kilom- a stretch of two, three kilometers, and then again fast straights. In my opinion, it was very fast, a lot of fast sections, not enough dune sections. I would have liked to spend a lot more time in the dunes. I mean, only on day stage five we had off 200 kilometers of dunes, which was really cool. Then on stage. 11 the morning we had about 120 k's of dunes and then it would just be plateau flat plateau 
dune, like one or two dunes, and then flat plateau, one or two dunes, and then through a, a like a, a slower section. We had very big distances to do. So the shortest day being our final day, stage 12, that special was a hundred and a total of 200 kilometers, and then our longest special being 540 kilometers. How big is the tank on your bike, and how far can you go? Our bike is 28, my bike now is 28 liters, so it can go really far. Yeah. I mean, the organization is phenomenal. So we have something what you call a neutralization within our specials. So on the longer specials, we'd have two. On the shorter specials of like a 340K, we'd only have one. And that would come um, normally like around about the halfway mark through the special. So as you come in to your neutralization, it stops your time there and gives you 15-minute countdown where you can refuel, have something to eat, mm. clean your goggles, do whatever you need to do, go to the loo. And then in the, when the 15-minute countdown's over, it recontinues with your time of where you stopped and then you carry on racing the rest of the special. Um, some of the times we had to do really long road sections in the special tests because obviously maybe because we're close to a town so they had to take us through a town or whatever the case may have been or they wanted us to cover distance over a quick amount of time so then we would get onto a road section and sometimes that road section would be like 130 140 k's and they would give us two and a half hours to do that section and if we came in to, to before the start sometimes we had 45 minutes just gives us longer time to rest and it was yeah. quite cool i like the neutralizations because it was cool. We got to chat with the guys, you know, how's your ride going? Did you see this? Did you do that? Uh, uh, what did you think of this? And we all just get to catch up and it's races amongst races. Well, that, that, I mean, that was one of my questions is, is competitiveness in the sport, right? Yes. So you're all competing, yeah. but you're all there together exactly. and you're all going through this incredible adventure that even though we're sitting here talking about it today, mm. not many people will be able to relate or understand. Yes. But you guys as the riders... All did, exactly. and you're part. You're part of that almost alumni of the this year's Dakar. Yeah. So, did you make some friends while you were over there? I would land up riding with the. You sort of when you're out there, you figure you get at the same pace, sort of guys. So there was an Aussie. Uh, ben Young, really cool guy. I made friends with. We rode a lot together. Another guy from New Zealand who was on my team, um, Phil Wilson. We did a lot of riding together. Then I, I made some some guys that I called my Chinas from China. <laughs> I used to say, hey, China. And they didn't. They had no idea. They would just smile at me. <laughs> so they were really cool guys. Um, there were three of them that we always – they couldn't hardly speak a word of English. But every time we came in, they had the biggest smile on their face. And they would say, you, you ride so good. And um, – <laughs> So that was really cool. Um, and then, yeah, we normally, normally everyone, like you have your pack of everyone coming in at the same time and everyone talks. I had a one guy from, where was he from? I think he was from France. Sebastian. He that sounds would, French. Yeah, he would <laughs> dance. He just danced. He put his, like at the end of the, end of the stage and when we had our legs on, so he'd put his earphones in. And he would just start dancing, singing. Like he was just so stoked to be there and to be at the Dakar. And he was really cool because he would make, make us all laugh after a long day. And he would just um, pretend his hydration pack thing was his microphone. And he would run across the, the tarmac and singing and dancing, which was so fun to see at the end yeah. of the day. And everyone, the thing is, the first six days was quite competitive. You know, everyone's like, race, 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 race. Then everyone realized, like, this is a long race. And it's dangerous. And we actually just here to finish, you know, we're mid-pack, we're not going to win anything, but there's so much to lose. Let's just enjoy it, take it in, enjoy the people around you, and that's the vibe that we all got, you know, when we come past each other, it's big thumbs up, and the camaraderie was insane, and me being a female, nothing different. I'm a rider, I'm a yeah. Dakar rider, and um, yes, you, they say you're a girl, like the quad guys are like really good riding at that finish line, they're like really good riding, but it's... 
The thing is, there's more women coming, so it's becoming a norm. It's not like, oh, there's a yeah, woman but here. I, we spoke about this in the, in the yeah. last podcast, and I, I implore whoever's listening to this that didn't listen to the last one to go listen to it. Yes. Because um, you are helping set that field, uh, South Africa and internationally, because it's an international race that people watch, right? Of course, yeah. And there's going the to be little girls that are sitting in front of the TV that saw you yeah. uh, or see you, and they're going to go, I want to do that when, exactly. I, when I'm older, which is so cool. And it's 100% doable. That's the thing is it, it can be done. You know, it's, it is expensive, but, um, you know, you, get, you can do it. You know, you, you just got to believe in yourself. And there was a girl from Spain who was so inspirational. She, I watched her last year and followed her last year. Sara Garcia, I'm sure if you followed the Dakar, you would have seen she, got, she was also a hero. They did the Malemoto class, which is um, you go there on your own. Support crew, no support crew, nothing. You, you've got two drums that you put all your stuff into, and you've got to just, you're on your own. You sleep in a tent, and you just ace out. And uh, her and her husband or fiancé or boyfriend did it together this year, and I waited for her to come across the finish line. It was so emotional because they didn't finish last year. And um, she's worked so hard. Like when we had a night at the marathon stage, all the girls stayed together in one like cubicle, and we had um, quite some time to talk. And that was on stage 10. That was her second shower of the Dakar. <laughs> yeah, gross. Uh, she's like, I rather, I rather. It's more for me. It's more important to sleep than shower. Where I'm the opposite. I rather shower yeah. than sleep. Yeah. But um, it just shows you that they have. They, she really had really long days, and then when after a long day on the bike, they're getting back in the dark, like eight, nine, ten at night. They were still got to work on their motorbike. And then get up and do it all over again. Again, oh. so huge respect to those to the Malimoto guys. Every time I saw them, I thought you flipping crazy buggers because we could recognise them with the, they had a red backing on their number board. But um, super inspirational. Huge, but huge respect. Huge, 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 huge. So I mean, you touched on now the sleeping arrangements. What are they? How does it work? So um, in the bivouac, as anything. Um, out of the marathon stage, we only had one night in the marathon stage, which was the stage nine, and then well, I think it was stage stage the night of stage nine into stage ten. They supply uh, rooms for us to sleep in. Um, all the guys stayed in big dorms, and the girls the girls were separate. They had their own dorms. Then in the bivouac, whatever you bring, you sleep in. Whether it's a tent, I was fortunate enough um, with obviously with Roby coming on board, we were able to get. They wanted me to have the best of the best, and. Um, you know, in, in doing that, they said, you know, Dakar, as hard as it is, we want you to, to get a good night's sleep. Get a we good want night's you to be sleep, rested which is so, so important. And day. also, it was cold. So, to be able to, I had a camper van, um, which is really nice. Um, you know, you can close the door, shut off from what's going on outside. It's a little bit quieter because that bivouac never sleeps. Those oaks work all night. On their bikes, on their cars. The cars, the cars are revving, the trucks are revving. Uh, there's people going up and down. You hear cluck, cluck, cluck. It just, it, there is permanent noise. There's a constant hum of generators. And the lights that the lights on, there's, so. there's the lights up and these big floodlights i mean the bivouac was about a kilometer long and in that you had all the trucks cars and it, the teams it is what amazed me the most about the dakar was the fact that they can move a whole race village of nearly 3000 people with a hospital with a food court the food court area was huge with all the tv screens the logistics it is it is insane it's like a city and then Everyone gets up and moves the next day and you arrive and the whole thing's up again. So obviously they've got one moving ahead of another because it's – I mean, our pit crew were doing nearly 700 kilometers a day. While oh. we were riding that distance, they were also driving that distance. So 
it's mind blowing what they do with the logistics and the setups. And so, yeah, so everyone either stays in their tents or their camper vans, or, you know, you get the really fancy O's that come there with their big trucks and these things that blow out. And you can see those that have got big cash. Yeah. Um, their, their house on wheels. That's it. It's really cool. And then we have the ablutions. Uh, girls, um, Sham, I don't think any of the guys had one hot shower because obviously majority of the, of the people there were men. The females, if you were lucky enough to get in early enough, you could have a warmish shower. <laughs> it lasted about two minutes. <laughs> and then, yeah, the, the, the bathrooms, it's, it's all separate men and female. And then we've got the food hall, which is open 24 seven, um, which was a new thing this year. I think people last year coming in late, they, they didn't get food. So Saudi Airlines supplied the food this year, which was very decent, you know, yeah. um, nothing home cooked. Like it didn't feel like nothing that feels as good as a home cooked meal. Of course, but it was everyone was eating from there. They had nice tea, nice coffee. They had cokes. I mean, and you can have as much of it as you want, and it was nice. They had soups and they had some salads, and it was perfect. Um, so I know that the I know that the whole rally is hard. Yes, but in your mind, what was the hardest bit? What was the breaking point? What was the point where you were like, oh, this is a lot? For me, so I knew that Dakar was going to be fast. And I, it is off-road racing. It's cross-country. It's generally higher speeds. But my gosh, this was a whole other level of speed. It was not what I expected. I was pulled right out of my comfort zone. I was uncomfortable the whole time. Um, it was very, very fast. And the thing is, yeah, everyone will probably think, well, just slow down a bit. But when you ride slow or someone overtakes you, then you sit in their dust and you can't see. You know, Whereas if you keep a, pay, a constant pace... Then you know there's, those gaps there's between, a gap yeah. in between, and when you're riding in the dust, it is so scary because then you can't follow your road because you're so trying to look, you're so busy trying to look ahead of what's in front of you. Both when you're not following your road, book, it's dangerous, but when you're following something in front of you, it's dangerous. You know, and then also the high speeds, there were just so many accidents. And when I was, I kept seeing these accidents, kept seeing these accidents. So there, there were accidents during the rally. Yeah, there were a few. Very sadly, a very, very well-known rider, Paulo Gonzalez from Portugal, 13-time Dakar finisher, legend. He's a top 10 Dakar finisher every year. He's been doing the Dakar for many years. He passed away on stage seven. Mm. Yeah. Very, very sad. He had a high, very bad high-speed accident, and um, he passed away. And like the whole time I was riding, I was just like, I, I just want to finish this safely, you know. I just want to get through this safely because you just see people falling out from accident after accident after accident. Then when I went past that, I was like, should I be doing this? Is it really worth it? Why am I here? I questioned my like, why are you here? You, 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 you've been through the accident. You've survived the accident. And now you're back in that same position where you feel like you know, if you crash, you can die. And that was my biggest battle. That's what I um, found the hardest. It's something I faced every day, all day. And then after that, you know, they canceled the stage eight, which was a good thing out of respect for Paolo. And then stage nine, you know, it was still, it was fast. It was it was a fast deck. We had high distances. We had high distances to cover you know the stages just got really fast and it is Dakar that's the thing is this is Dakar this is what makes Dakar so tough I mean every all the years there's, there's been deaths and then on stage 11 you know we hadn't for we haven't forgotten about Paolo I hadn't forgotten about him but you know you kind of get back into the groove because we've now done stage nine and then halfway through stage nine they cancelled the rest of the rally the rest of the stage we got to the neutralization where the refill was and they said no the stage has been cancelled because there's no more helicopters, because all the helicopters had been sent back and forth for so many accidents that morning. So there were no more. From so a from sa a safety point safety of view, they point, were like. Yeah, but it's just there were so many crashes. I had ridden past three myself. And every time you see a helicopter and you ride and you're like, and I kept saying, I kept praying, please, please don't let there be an accident. Please don't let there be an accident. Because it's scary. You don't know what you're going to see when you get there. And then on stage 11, 
um, about 150 k's into the loop. The morning had started off really cool in dunes. It was slower and I was really enjoying it. Then we got to like a fast road section and there were lurkers on like lots of loose rocks on the road. And then like it would be a, a sandy straight or like a dust sandy straight. And then there would be a dune, like a dune that had blown onto the road and then carrying on. But it was a really, really long straight. And then you see a helicopter and then they... It, you can see there's two bikes and every time when you see there's two bikes there's more than one bike or if there's you know not just the person that's had the crash there you know it's bad so you drive around and then you see the the rider being uh, resuscitated and then you know straight away it's not good um and you also see because you know you get you get an idea of your field you know and i knew that he would start a high started high up so he had been there for a while and um then the rest of the day I I just backed off completely and I was then I was like, oh, is this really worth it? You know, again, you question, why am I here? Should I be here? You know, and then when we get to the the neutralization, uh, we were talking amongst ourselves. Is he OK? Did anyone see the accident? What happened? And then everyone says, like, you know, the, the guys always said to me, a lot of the guys said, they said, I'm, I'm a father. I've got four kids. And um, it makes it real that how dangerous and how selfish the sport can actually be. We want to do it for fun, but we can go there and, and we can die. And just for our selfish fun reasons. So, so I need to ask because you did finish yes. and uh, you, you had all of these thoughts in your mind. Mm. When you crossed the finish line, did you find your why? Uh, yeah, I found it now. Definitely. It's, it is when you get through it at the time, you question all of those things. But when you've gone through what you've gone through and you've accomplished what you what you've accomplished and only you know what you've accomplished and obviously the other Dakar competitors, it is so worth it. It is especially because I wanted to overcome my fear. I mean, I, yes, that finishing the Dakar was cool, and being the first African female to do it from Africa is cool on a bike. But for me, I wanted to face my fears. And, you know, I'm a strong believer of what you put out into the universe, you get back. And I wanted to do Dakar to overcome my fear of speed, to overcome my accident. And it's so weird. I got get, got all of that back in the Dakar. We saw accidents. It was so high speed. It was dangerous. It was everything that I was afraid of, I saw every single day. And um, I, I most certainly faced my fears head on. I dealt with so much emotional stuff that I... Well, you're in, your, you're in your head a lot of the time. Jeez, you are, you are so alone out there. The distances are so long. I mean, our longest day was 900 kilometers. You're 900 um, kilometers yeah. in your head. That's a good day of meditation. By yourself. Um, there's, you know, you've got all this stuff going on around you, but you're just thinking to yourself the whole time. And um, there was just so much to think about. And um, I set out what I wanted to do. You know, not just my goal being to finish, but I, I, I conquered my fears head on. I've grown to comfort going a little bit faster. I mean, sitting at, in the beginning of the rally, I was sitting at 110 kilometers, being like, this is stupid speeds. <laughs> and at the end of the race, I was getting up to 140, sitting comfortably, comfortably at 130 down a dirt straight, where, I mean, the top riders get up to 175. Yeah, but still 130 on a dirt road mm. on a little bike, that scares me. For me, that is huge because I'm, I'm a, uh, before Dakar, I, was, I wouldn't go over fourth gear. So to sit at 130, I ticked all the boxes. And I am so happy with how with how everything went, and um, yeah, it's I can't believe it's done. I, you know, at the time there, you're thinking, when is this going to end? It's like it feels like it's dragging <laughs> on, especially when you're sitting at a 900 kilometer stage, and you're like, 
only on kilometer one. <laughs> um, but it went, it went by really, it actually went, like now I think about it, it went by too fast. I actually yeah. would just like to pause in the moment and just have been able to take it all in a bit more, but I'll probably have to go back for another one and <laughs> take it all back in. Well, South Africa's waiting for you to go back for another one. We all want to be shouting for you again. Um, you. Advice for someone who's listening who might be thinking, man, I want to enter the Dakar, the next one. What is, what, what advice would you give? I know, I, I know there's money and all of that, yes. but from a, a rider's point of view, from a human point of view, what advice would you give? I would say go in there well prepared. I certainly was well prepared. You know, don't do it in a rush because um, there's no need to rush. Dakar isn't going anywhere. Saudi Arabia isn't going anywhere. Okay, you did say mentioning the fact of money. It takes so much money to get there. Rather go there with the right amount, do it the right way, and make sure that your experience is well worth it because you don't want to go there and have the chance of not finishing because that is absolutely gut-wrenching. I don't even want to know if I had a bike mechanic and I couldn't finish because of something like that. You know, don't take any shortcuts in terms of bike, team, preparation with yourself. Make sure that you are more than a capable rider to be able to do those distances because, you know, it's it's long. It's long hours on the bike. You're long days. It's cold. If if you're not having a good time, you must be able to be like, you just got to keep going. You got to be stubborn. I'm stubborn. I'm very goal driven, and you got to be passionate about it. You also just got to you got to love. You got to love two wheels, and you got to even if you want to do it on a car, if you want to do it in a truck, you just got you got to have that passion. Yeah. Because that passion is what drives me through the hard times, and um, my goal of overcoming. My fears of, of wanting to achieve what I set out to do is what got me to the finish line. And obviously, having all the support of South Africa was insane. I mean, the messages are still streaming through. I, I just can't keep up with everything. It is It has been incredible. And... Um, I'm so proudly South African and it's quite funny, Brad and Brian, <laughs> I got to the finish line podium and it was an hour before I crossed the podium because I uh, I said to them, I'm so proudly South African, I really, really am. And, uh, and when I was on the starters podium, I wore my South African flag as a cape. Yeah. Because I did, I felt like a flipping superhero. <laughs> <laughs> and then and, and then at the finish line, I said, Brad and Bryony, please make sure you guys bring my flag with bring me. Bring my cape. I want to wear my cape and I want to fly that flag so high because no other South Africans had their flags with them because we had raced the whole day. And I don't think no one really, I mean, you're in that race mode. You yeah. don't think to pack a flag into your backpack or into your, into your jacket. And um, they, didn't, they couldn't find my, my flag. So I said, it's fine. I'll just wait here until we find it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And uh, somehow someone had it. We don't know who had it. But my, my, we found my flag an hour later. And, yeah, we know across the finish line. And to stand on that podium with, the flag. with your team, with Brad and Bryony, representing your, your sponsors that have got you there. And, again, I know I, I'm so grateful to Ryobi because – I would not have been able to do that without them. You know, I mean, I said, they got me to the Dakar and I got them to the finish line. And yes, I love that. that. Is, um, I'm super proud. And to hold my South African flag up there was, it was the proudest moment of my life yet. And uh, like you say, um, South Africa can't wait for me to go back. I'm, well, I think I'm getting excited to go back already. Um, I've, I've got the worst, <laughs> this is the worst question in every interview, but I do it anyway because <laughs> listeners want to know what's next. Um, Maybe a holiday. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, there isn't even time for that. Um, the South African National Enduro Series starts the first races on the eighth of Feb, so there's no time. So I've, um, I've just literally, I got back on Sunday this week. I haven't done any training, so I'll start training next week. It's go back into racing. Yeah, nationals at home, and then obviously we've got to sort things out. So because Dakar is not just a few months, it's a year prep. So if I want to do Dakar 2021, I need to get everyone on board. 
Yep. So that's that's actually what's next is sorting out the year ahead. Well, good luck. Uh, we'll be following you. Good things, guys. An avid supporter of you. Our readers love you. Thank you. Uh, when we put out the article that you were the first finisher as an African female on a bike, they went mad. Like the, awesome. the response that we had was really, really positive. Oh, I'm so glad. Um, and we just love celebrating South Africans that are doing good. So keep flying that flag. And there's so many of us out there, and I'm super proud to be South African. Yes. <laughs> um, thank you very much. That's the first show of uh, 2020, and I'm excited to be kicking off um, this new year with good things and let me tell you i can feel it in my bones this year is going to be phenomenal for our country for our people in business i've got this really good feeling that 2020 is really going to be 20 plenty uh, this is the good things guy podcast only on jackpot i'm brendan de south africa's very own good things guy and you've been listening to good things guy a jackpot podcast for more episodes or to subscribe rate or review my podcast go to itunes iona fm or Google Podcasts. Be kinder than necessary to yourself and each other. Thanks, and only good things.